even in my career, the time that I've been involved in agriculture, more than a billion extra people are actually on this planet. So you think about a billion extra people actually asking for high quality, safe food wherever they actually are. There's a great demand, there's a lot of change, and so agriculture has to keep up with that. Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this episode, we chat with UQ's Chair of Prediction-Based Crop Improvement, Professor Mark Cooper. Mark is a global leader in plant breeding and crop improvement and a pioneer in the emerging field of prediction agriculture. His return to UQ after 20 years in the field, finding innovative solutions to the world's food gap issues. Mark, welcome. Thank you. And welcome back to UQ. So what have you been researching overseas while you've been away? So I've been working in a range of crops, looking at strategies for accelerating the rate at which we can improve the performance of crops in agriculture, and to do that in a way that's sustainable with environmental resources, and do it in a way that we can deliver uh, products that are useful to farmers globally, and they can use it for their needs in their agricultural systems. You say globally, where have you been in the 20 years since you've been at UQ? I have worked on all the major continents where agriculture is important, uh, North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Australia, Asia. Um, And so agriculture is critical to the development of civilization all over the world and everything we take advantage of. And so looking at how we can sustainably manage the, the needs of societies around the world is really important. So agriculture is present there. The research we're doing has impact into all of those systems, multiple crops um, globally. When you say um, agriculture, most people think, well, haven't we got this right after thousands of years? Um, why do we have to continually improve um, our agricultural processes? It's an interesting question because when most people drive by agriculture, they probably think of it as being pretty static, not changing that much. But the easiest way to think about it is if you consider the amount of people in the world, it's changing all the time, the pressures in particular areas, the demands of society, the types of foods that we actually want, they're changing all of the time so that people are asking agriculture to deliver more more nutritious, safer, um, deliver it with um, good quality um, wherever they are. So where people go, they expect food to actually follow. One of the interesting statistics that always strikes me is even in my career, the time that I've been involved in agriculture, more than a billion extra people are actually on this planet. So you think about a billion extra people actually asking for high-quality, safe food wherever they actually are. There's a great demand, there's a lot of change, and so agriculture has to keep up with that. And you don't just uh, visit fields and look at what people are doing and and model off that. You actually do a lot of sort of science um, involving computers and things like that. Can you talk me through your particular research area? So the work that we're doing has a real interface between observing how agricultural systems work. So you're actually trying to understand the needs of the people, the societies, 
thinking about those demands and designing experiments that generate data, particular information about how the crops perform in their systems. And as we start to understand the biology, the genetics and the physiology, how the plants actually capture resources, radiation, water, the nutrients from the soil and translate those into what we harvest. Uh, we're running experiments to think about how we can do that more effectively with the resources that are available. And that could be trying to get more with using less or sometimes maintaining the same levels of productivity by reducing the amount of inputs um, that are actually being used in agriculture. Those experiments give us a lot of data, lots and lots of data. So managing the data is a big part of what we actually do. And then what we're particularly interested in beyond just using the, the data to describe those experiments is actually extracting particular pieces of information that we can use to build models and then use those models to actually run simulations of those agricultural systems very rapidly so that we can start to ask a lot of questions with the models we build about those systems and use that to upscale the overall value of the research that we actually do. That then in turn generates more ideas and creates a new round of experiments. And so the whole cyclical nature of our research continues with iteratively running experiments, getting more information, testing the models, refining them, improving them, and then using the information that we actually generate from those models. So you have, as we've discussed, returned to UQ, and you have a very great title that's Chair of Prediction-Based Crop Improvement. Impressive, but what does it actually mean? Ah, interesting question. And if you think about the crop improvement that we were doing, when I started as a plant breeder, pretty much everything we were doing was hands-on, in the field, Every cross you would make and all the data you generate were from doing things by hand, manually. Everything was totally empirical. Um, what we're trying to do by building these models, and we talked earlier about the iterative research cycle where we're trying to generate data and create models to, to then pose new questions. So one of the opportunities that we're actually looking at is if we can develop our models to a level of adequacy that they capture some of the key properties of the agricultural systems we're studying, the genetic improvements that we're trying to make in the crops, we could use those models to actually predict many more opportunities than we would ever like to think about um, testing out empirically. And it, it's not that difficult to understand why. If you think about some of the traits, the characteristics of the plants that we're trying to manipulate, they may be controlled by anywhere from 10 to maybe a thousand genes. And if you think about each one of those genes just having two different variants, and all we were trying to do was look at every possible combination. And even if you thought about it in the simplest maths of two to the thousand, and think about all those combinations, the number very quickly gets larger than the number of known protons in the universe, 10 to the 80. So you can't empirically do everything or look at every combination that you'd actually like to test. So what we're trying to do is use these models 
to actually test in silico a lot of the ideas and predict what would be the interesting things to create in our applied empirical breeding programs rather than just trying to create everything, test it and sort it out. So the prediction allows us to increase the scale of what we're doing and increase the chances of success. And also reduce that time. So rather than having a go at this failing, moving on to the next, you're actually speeding it up. You've already got it. See, you understand it perfectly. So we're trying to, even if we can deliver similar outcomes, but reduce the time markedly, has a dramatic impact on the overall success rate of, of the effort. Absolutely. Do you find a lot of people are quite surprised when you say that you're doing uh, research in a lab to do with agriculture? You're not out there so much putting one little seed in the the soil, growing it and having a look at it, that there's so much science that goes on in research labs. So the short answer would be yes. The majority of people are usually very surprised. I think that's also a fact that not that many people are involved in agriculture in a lot of areas today. And so they have a, an understanding that's probably quite removed from what's actually done in agriculture today. So yeah, they, they, they usually are a bit surprised. What are the challenges that we're facing? Because there's um, a word that comes up a lot, and I didn't understand it until I started working at UQ, which is food security. This is something that we've, uh, as a, a, a world, we're, we're facing. I think that there are many challenges that we're actually facing today. For me, one of the biggest challenges is that in most agricultural systems, we're certainly not producing all of what people want in the way that they necessarily need it to be produced. And in the developed countries, that could be trying to achieve levels of productivity by reducing the amount of input so that we manage environmental damage, um, contamination and so forth um, more effectively. Whereas in other countries, we're actually trying to work out um, where they are not producing enough food. How can we actually close the gap between the potential that could be realized and what they're able to achieve today? without doing it in a way that creates a lot of negative impacts. So we're trying to close that gap in a sustainable way. And a big challenge for a lot of the research that we're actually doing is not thinking about just closing the gap, but doing it in that way that leaves the minimal environmental footprint as a good stepping stone towards even better approaches as we go forward. And is it hard to get some places on board with that concept? I can imagine that perhaps a a third world country might be focusing more on mass development and looking less at the sustainable side um, just because they have goals they need to meet quickly. I think it it sort of fluctuates. Um, When countries are feeling the pressure of any deficit, whether it's through food safety or food quantity or nutrition or combinations of all of those, that creates an immediate and obvious um, appreciation of the gaps. Um, When things are going really well, it's very easy to step back and say, we've solved that problem, and assuming that the problem may not actually recur. I think a lot of people that are involved in agriculture and actually live in agricultural systems 
know how variable and harsh the environment can be at times. So they're always thinking about minimizing or reducing or managing their risk factor, as well as the productivity uh, aspect to it as well. Then you have a lot of people that are really removed from that in other countries where they're not feeling that every day. It may be harder for them to appreciate that you know, there are people dealing with questions such as, can I produce enough food to keep all of my family alive this year, rather than thinking about it long term? And even if I get enough food, is that nutritionally valu valuable food so that I'm not sort of limiting my um, family in any way? Uh, it's just nutritional quality has a big impact on um, the overall health of a family. And so those are issues that you're dealing with. And Sometimes just getting enough food isn't enough. It's getting the right type of food. So we're, all of those aspects are targets that we're looking at when we're thinking about crop improvement and food gaps. It's not simply just a quantity aspect. It's, it's meeting those needs, whatever they actually are. Has some, you know, climate change um, also impacted the way farmers farm? It's certainly impacting the way farmers are thinking about farming in the long term. And having worked with um, farmers all over the world, a lot of them are thinking about their farm not as something as a business that's going to deliver only income this year. They're thinking about it as a legacy they might be leaving for the next generation. So they are thinking about these issues longer term. What is this actually going to do to you know this important resource for the future that, that today I have stewardship responsibility for. How do I pass that on to the next generation? Is it going to be my children or is it going to be someone else that's actually going to take over responsibility for this resource for society? You've worked in commercialization, yeah. um, but you're also an avid researcher. You've managed to balance both. Yes. Is there something you prefer out of the two of those? I like all aspects of the continuum. Having a great discovery and actually being fortunate enough to be the first person that, that finds something is a really exciting experience. But then in the end, you want to tell someone about it. And so you can do that within the scientific community. And then if you think that, well, what I found has profound value if it can be used in the right way, for a lot of people around the world. So how do we actually turn that great discovery into that profound value? And so then working through all the way to a business level of consideration of the proposition that you've developed and making it available to a lot of customers around the world is really exciting. It, it actually challenges you in many ways. If there's one thing that I've learned is if you want to find out if there's something wrong with your ideas, make it available to thousands of other people because they'll come back and tell you when they find something that doesn't work that, that well. So that, that's sort of an interesting and exciting aspect of the commercialization side. If you think of it as an endpoint, um, you can think of it as a linear sort of approach, but I, I sort of like the whole idea of thinking about it as circular research, like a cyclical circular economy where you're actually using all of the outcomes, even the things that you found out that are weaknesses as new inputs for 
for the next cycle that you actually do. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, really value that you can get out of that, that whole continuum. So if you think of it as a circular process where you're learning from it, it's all value in, in my, se- my, my perspective. And what drew you back to UQ after your exciting international career? One of the things that really drew me back to UQ was the infrastructure here and the planning and the thought that's gone into how you can take research and deliver impact for society. Working in the private sector, I was able to do that for a component of agriculture globally, but there are a lot of other areas that uh, companies may not have as being their primary targets. So there's a big lag between what you can do in that company and impact, for example, cassava in agriculture in Africa. And whereas working in the university, a lot of those people, the ideas and the developments that you're working on, there may be a more direct path to helping people with things you've learned for maize in North America that have relevance for how you might have greater impact through improving cassava for people in Africa. And so the opportunity to help close that gap take those learnings, make them more accessible, train the next generation uh, beyond what was uh, done in the private sector with the teams that I was working with was part of the excitement. And the other part is that I truly believe that an important part of my job has always been to work my way out of a job. And so once you've created a team that can actually take over what you've been doing, the best thing you can do is get out of their way and let them get on with it rather than just hanging around like an old person hanging around in the sort of the shadows, sort of telling them what to do. Just let them get on with it after you've developed a team to actually do that. So after returning, after mm-hmm. 20 years away, has a lot changed at UQ in your opinion? It's a good question. Um, when you walk onto the campus, it sort of there's so many things that look similar. Um, I mean, even like the jacarandas at exam time and sort of the anxiety that goes with, have you started studying before the jacarandas flower? All all of those things are similar. So first impressions are, boy, it seems very similar, but it operates in quite a different way. I guess the technologies um, have had a big impact on it. It's, it's, um, there's, there's a lot of things that are operating here differently than when I was, um, a student and a faculty member of, of the university. Seems very strange for a young person to um, go into this sort of area. What drew you to it? How did you come from, obviously, a long time ago in Scotland to end up where you are now? Yeah, I'd say it's sort of pretty much an interesting random walk. You think you have some directionality in where you're actually going, but there are influences and forces that you encounter on the way that shape things that are important to you. Uh, my family migrated from Scotland to Australia, moved from a small rural community in Scotland, thinking I knew something about agriculture, coming to uh, Australia where you're into broadacre farming. It's very different than the intense farming in Scotland. And... Uh, getting my eyes open to that that world and 
it, it just inspired me to think about some of the opportunities. I was always interested in sciences and the opportunity came up to apply those in the agricultural sciences and that's the path I took. Yep. And it's taken you around the world. Yes. No limits on where you can actually go in in the research community that I work in. So the ability to travel, actually go to places and live with people and learn their world through their eyes by working with them is is a very uh, rewarding and uh, I mean I think fortunate uh, way to to be able to learn about the world. Do you have a bit of a different relationship with food? Seeing as you know so much what goes into it, I imagine you look at something and you are aware of the nutritional value and the sustainability of it and what it takes to grow it, whereas a lot of us would just get a piece of bread and not really know what went into it. I would say definitely yes, and I would encourage everybody to be just as inquisitive. I actually enjoy spending a lot of time looking at the labels, looking at what the ingredients actually are and realizing that what you're buying um, is a mixture of many different things and and understanding those. I I really like that. When it comes to something like bread, I'm also very interested in the way protein component actually influences how the bread actually performs. So I enjoyed making my own bread, just finding different flours with different protein content, trying different yeasts, making bread at times. And yeah, that's been really interesting. It makes you appreciate a lot more what you're eating. So, so that, that applies across the board. Yeah, I think so. Does that mean when you say walk past a McDonald's or pick up a bag of potato chips, you're a little bit more like, oh, I know exactly what's happening here? <laughs> I'm very mindful of balancing um, what I'm actually eating, I, I think is what it comes down to. So I don't mind eating things with a lot of salt in them when I know I need a lot of salt, uh, but I don't, wouldn't recommend to do that every day for everybody. Just think about what your body actually needs and on the nutritional side and, and eat foods in, in alignment with that. That's certainly something that I pay attention to, not just because of my background and the research that I've done, but, but also just sort of a healthy lifestyle. When you talk about nutritional value and going back, I suppose, a bit to your research, is there a crop that, um, you know, researchers are investigating to try and make as the feed-all type um, crop? Is it a wheat? Is it a corn? I think that um, most crops, people try to diversify their uses um, as an outcome of long-term research activities in those crops. I was recently at the International Sorghum Conference where they were, there were people there that were spending quite a bit of time thinking about how could you make bread out of sorghum. And so there are certain proteins that sorghum doesn't have, which make it really difficult to make uh, bread out of it. Um, bread, as we think about it, made from wheat. And so, you know, they're, they're going to keep trying. And so there, there's research in those areas. And so it, um, yeah, people are going to try lots of different things. But I think that the most important thing to think about is having a diversity of foods to get the carbohydrates, the proteins, the, the micronutrients, and uh, the lipids that, that you actually need in your diet and thinking about getting that in a balance. I 
don't believe that there's any one crop that's ever going to deliver that. But I think that there are ways in which you can blend lots of foods to make sure that that you meet all of those needs. And so that diversity is uh, really quite important. Is there a um, basic crop like, say, wheat? Um, how much has that changed that we'd be unaware of over the last 10, 15, 50 years um, from what our farmers used to produce to what is delivered today? There, there are a lot of changes that have gone on that some of them might be visible to people. If you were to walk into a wheat field maybe 60 years ago compared to today, I think most of the wheat that you would see would be much taller than it actually is today. Um, the wheat's much shorter uh, today. If you went into a maize crop um, from 40 years ago compared to today, I think most people look at this and if you're familiar with a maize crop, it's got very erect leaves pointing up to the sky today, whereas a lot of the older maize hybrids had much floppier leaves and they were hanging over. And the tassels, the male part on the top, the branching is big, whereas it's much smaller now. So if you grow them side by side, they, they look very different. They still look like maize, but they just look very different yeah, from each other. So they've, they've changed quite a lot. That's at the visual level. At the structure of the chromosomes, the, the DNA that, that actually controls those traits, there have been some significant changes in the composition of some of those chromosomes that I, I think that people, it would be great if they understood exactly what had been achieved and the impact and the positive outcomes that have been realized from that. We talked earlier about nutrition, and you're a person that's really aware of feeding your body what it needs, probably because you're a long-distance runner. Can you tell me how you got started in that? Yep. Um, I really have been a lifelong runner. I think it's just slowly built up uh, beyond being something that I've added on and done as a sport around everything else to just being part of a lifestyle choice. And in making that a lifestyle choice, you really have to think about the nutrition that, that enables you to keep doing that. So the interest in nutrition also goes with how your body consumes uh, the energy and all of the other components uh, of, your, of your body when you're doing endurance running. Yeah. So your work's taken you around the world, but your running has as well. What are some of the great places that you've seen on foot with a pair of uh, sneakers on your, your feet? So the running has taken me to a lot more places than the works, actually. The, uh, as I've traveled the world with work, I always take um, running shoes, shorts, and a shirt, and I'll try to run just about anywhere uh, until the people I'm with tell me, it's not safe, don't do it. So I take their advice, and, and I don't do it. That's a recommendation to anybody. If your local person tells you it's not safe, it's probably not safe. Um, but... In terms of the most interesting places that I've been to, I think um, you'd have to rate Antarctica and the North Pole as being the most extreme and interesting. And there are places that people don't usually get a chance to get to. But I've managed to complete marathons on both of those locations. Yeah. So blisters are usually a problem when you're a weekend warrior like myself. Um, what sort of things do you have to take into account then when you're running in Antarctica or the North Pole? The important thing was getting the right gear, 
the regulated uh, temperature. So you don't want to be exposed to cold and wind on your exteriors. But at the same time, you don't want to just bundle up too much that you sweat profusely under those clothes because you're in such extreme temperatures that if you start sweating and it's not breathing out of the clothing correctly, it'll freeze in between the clothing and your skin and that can do a lot more damage uh, than, than sort of being too light. So there, there's special clothing and uh, equipment that you can actually get to ensure that you can regulate your body temperature and not build up too much moisture and, and cause freezing and exposure. Exposure is the thing you really have to worry about when you're running in those conditions. What about the wildlife? So the North Pole was an interesting one because you're in a location where there are frequently polar bears encountered, so you have to be a little bit cautious and careful. And certainly when we were running and any activities that we were doing outside, there were always armed guards around more than anything to to watch out for the polar bears and to scare them away and try and stop you getting close to them and becoming uh, a snack is what it would come down to if they actually decided to, to find you. So my fear of being swept by a magpie is pretty ridiculous compared to a polar bear devouring me. Well, actually, probably not so much. The, the chances <laughs> of you getting caught by a polar bear are slim, but getting swooped by a magpie in Brisbane are pretty high, I would say. <laughs> My own experience is that, yeah, I've been swooped by many magpies here. Uh, the one thing that I did learn about polar bears, though, was that if one spots you and it starts to stalk you, you're in big trouble because <laughs> they're not going to give up. I'd pretty much guess that too. Yep. <laughs> Your lunch. Your lunch. Yeah. Um, so uh, you've done the cold. Have mm -hmm. you done something at the other end? I temperature run marathons in some of the deserts. The one of the more memorable ones was the Atacama Desert in northern Chile, uh, where we actually ran that one uh, in an area with a lot of volcanoes. So we were actually running at altitude in some of the driest places on the planet. It was really interesting. I've run the Petra Marathon, so people might be very familiar with Petra. Um, as sort of the ancient city where there was a lot of um, movement of goods and transporting um, in the, the Middle East. And, and it was made famous in the Indiana Jones movie, so everybody's probably seen the <laughs> facade. Yep. So that, that was really interesting. Um, so yeah, but the preparing for high temperature is a very different uh, activity than preparing for low temperature, obviously. For our listeners that aren't runners and probably want to get a bit of a concept of exactly what it is you do, I'm going to ask you a few sort of fast run stats. Okay. So uh, marathon distance in kilometres? 42.2. And have you ever run longer than that? Yep. How long? Longest I've run up to about 60 kilometres with ultra marathons. And what's your average time for doing a marathon? Uh, usually between 3 and 3.15, somewhere around about there. Three hours and three hours 15 would be sort of the target for a reasonable marathon. Not one of the extreme ones where terrain is, is much tougher, but in, in that ballpark. And do you train every day? Yes, I run every day. 
it's not training every day. It's a lifestyle choice every day. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I look forward to running every morning. Yep. What's your next running goal? So my next running goal is targeting what's called the World Marathon Challenge. And it's uh, an event where you attempt to run seven marathons in seven days. The trick is that each marathon is on a different continent. So that sort of is difficult in itself, but with all of the travel that's associated with that, it's even more challenging. And some of my colleagues and friends that have actually completed the event said, yeah, you can train to run seven marathons in seven days, but you'll never be able to train for being moved between those time zones and spending a lot of time trying to get sleep on airplanes and not being able to sleep when you want to sleep and having to run when you want to sleep. And so that's, I'm training for that at the moment. That'll be, if all goes well and I can stay injury-free and build up to that, that would be January next year. How do you even do that? Because would you finish essentially the marathon, head to the airport and jump on a plane? So no physio, no salt baths. Well, the part of the trick is obviously not to be last. So you've got a little <laughs> bit of time. You can recover and you can hopefully get a bit of a massage and, and recover a bit in between. But yeah, pretty much you're going to be running. Um, you'll have a little bit of downtime afterwards. Then you'll be going to the airport and you'll be hopping on a plane and going to the next location, getting off the plane, getting set up and getting ready to go. And what order do the continents go in? Okay, I'll try and do this from memory. <laughs> the no pressure. event, as it's scheduled, starts in Antarctica. Then you go to Africa and they fly to Cape Town. So they do one in South Africa. Then from there to Perth. So that gets you to Western Australia. Then from Perth to Dubai, which counts as the Asian one. And then from there, they go to Lisbon, which then counts as the European one. From Lisbon to Cartagena in Colombia, which is going to be the South American one. And then finally to Miami in North America, and that's the seventh one. Oh, straight into the ocean when you finish for <laughs> Yeah, you can relax cool on down. the beach, have a cool down and relax on the beach. Yep, that's right. Well, it really has been fun learning more about what you do, um, both in the lab and also in your spare time. Um, but before we close this episode, we are going to uh, delve into our short segment called Spare Change, in which we get to know you even better with some rapid fire questions. So are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> okay, here we go. So what's the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? I'm a super introvert and have major problems with small talk and parties. Well, you're faking it really well today, I must admit. Um, what's the one question that you're sick of being asked? Where are you from? And then when I say I'm from Australia, I get the answer, no, you're not. You don't sound like you're from here. Well, okay. And if I'm in Scotland and I say, well, I'm Scottish. I was born in Scotland. They say, you're not from around here. And if I'm living in the US and I say, yeah, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, you don't sound like an Iowan. So I'm really, it's impossible for me to answer the question, where am I from? You're a citizen of the world. Um, if we could go back in time by 10 years, what advice would you give your younger self? Don't sweat the small stuff. That's great advice. So who or what is your biggest influence in life? I 
really think that I'm inspired by watching people that are willing to try and push themselves beyond their limits. And so every day I actually can see people trying something that pushes them out of the comfort zone. And I, I'm truly impressed by that. And going back to your running questions, when I see people that are clearly just starting out running, all I can say is keep trying, just encourage them. It, it's really worth it in the end. Perfect. And lastly, if you had to choose a piece of music that would best describe you, which song would you play? Cheryl Crow's Every Day is a Winding Road. That's the end of another episode of UQ Changemakers. If you want to learn more about Mark's work, visit uq.edu.au forward slash changemakers, where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine. I'm Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. Our episode was produced by Michael Jones and Jessica McGore. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends or colleagues, leave a review on iTunes or email us at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next time when we interview another inspiring member of the UQ community. Thanks for listening.